You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I uh, go through the Bible and talk about all the weird things we can find there. Not all the weird things. Well, uh, we, we progressed. Fair enough. A decent number of the weird things we can find there. Um, talking about how you know ancient Hebrew literature affects us today. <laughs> yeah, because there's a lot of times it's like. Mm, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole and maybe not that one either, because I, you know, that's, that's one of the fun things when you start studying the Bible like this, you begin to really see how interconnected everything is. Mm -hmm. And just one thing leads to another. And finally, if you're going to do something like a podcast, you have to say, okay, I'm going to stop now <laughs> because right. if you don't. Right. And it's so, like, Teaching teaching classes, it's like learning what not to put in your class. Yeah, is yeah. is key because so, otherwise you're just dealing with a bunch of information that sounds kind of impressive, but it doesn't help anyone. <laughs> right. Well, you know, and, and you know, sometimes I can I can actually go there. I you know because I love all this stuff, and I think when you really love the Bible and and the more you study it, the more things you see that are just it's fascinating and you, you kind of get, get swept up and, uh, you know, I've been writing like a ton of notes on this one Psalm and I'm still, uh, I'm not even done because I still have a few more I'm working for the next episode because there's just things to bring out. And I think on one hand, yeah, you can get bogged down in the minutia so much that it's kind of pointless at some point. And then, but at the other, the other end of the spectrum is, when you see how it works together, then it gives you a better sense of just the overall artistry of the Bible. And maybe because I'm an artist, I, I do love the artistry of it. So mm -hmm. that just, to me, it's fascinating, especially when you think about how it's not written by a single author. It's not even written from people from the same culture and society all the way through all the changes that took place. And yet it still plays off of itself so well. And it's that playing off of itself or the interaction between the passages that really gives you that depth that that makes it exciting. And mm -hmm. it's not just words on the page then. Now it, it really is a treasure hunt. So anyhow, all that to say, in case you hadn't guessed, uh, yeah, I'm a big Bible geek. So <laughs> but anyway, uh, we are still in 2 Samuel 22, which is also Psalms 18 for those who uh, didn't know. So we, we have this wonderful song that David's composed about his life. And then he turns around, and according to the Talmud and the, the rabbis, and he's inspired to rewrite it in such a way that everybody can participate. Now, uh, we talked about how those rewrites were, you know, a lot of it's just differences in spelling, but the the essence and the 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 central the themes, yeah, yeah the, the core, core. <laughs> yeah, it's still the same. I mean, they're they're so close together that all of the differences really can be explained just by the progression and the evolution of language, which that does happen. 
Um, and I think people forget that all languages are always evolving all the time. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, for better or worse. Yeah. Well, you mean, you were, you were talking about the Roomba a while ago, you know, if somebody had said something about Roomba 30 years ago, nobody would have had any clues to what you meant. Sure. So, you know, that that's one way language evolves is by new things being invented. And so, or, you know, meeting people from a different culture and incorporating those phrases into your, your language. So it happens. But, um, we just talked about how David has gone from that place where, you know, the opening of the Psalm, God is his rock, his refuge, his shield, and that place of protection and the place where David could find security and safety. And now there's this shift. And now David is talking about going on the attack because God has empowered him. He's emboldened him. And David is emboldened primarily through that understanding that God is always true to his word. God's character is, uh, consistent. It's not something that, um, it's not something that changes. It's not driven by whim. It's not driven by lust, like a lot of other gods. It's not Mm -hmm. driven by this need for power. And, you know, and that's really a cool point when you think about it. God doesn't need power. Every Mm -hmm. other God out there needs power. God has power. And when you don't need something, when you, it's not vital for your, for your existence, then it doesn't become something you hoard. It's something right. that you can disseminate freely. And that's what God does. And that's another major way he differs from the gods that David's, you know, people in David's time would have been familiar with. And um, so, and we also talked about how in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, I'm trying to break the Old Testament thing because there's this idea that old is bad and new is good. And, you know, Jesus obviously says the old wine's better. But anyway, uh, we won't go on to that rabbit trail. <laughs> but we want to do, you One know, of my it, it, yes, the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, because it, it's not that the old is irrelevant. We, we're, we've been seeing how there is this continuity that flows from the Old Testament in the Hebrew scriptures to the new. And, um, you know, Jesus, when he builds off of these themes, he isn't changing them. He's amplifying them. So, again, that core, that same idea we talked about earlier, that core, that central theme is still present, but he's amplifying it. He's, he's applying it in a way that's different because now people are not going to be fighting, you know, real warriors who come against you with these crazy weapons to destroy you. We're, we are fighting against, you know, powers and principalities and forces of darkness. We aren't, we aren't fighting real war. So when we're talking about these, these violent images and how they, they reveal God's heart for us, we're not saying you need to go get a sword. Okay. Don't go get a bow. <laughs> you know, don't, This is the wrong way to do it. Cause now we've shifted. Well, yeah. Well, and I think we've, we've made it clear that a lot of the enemies David was fighting were the, you know, the, uh, the Rephaim, the Nephilim, you know, the, mm-hmm. these, creatures that weren't supposed to be here yeah. and and that now it's not a physical battle anymore that battle's been shifted into the spiritual realm right which is right. why christ came which is to further defeat the the enemy who lives in the spiritual realm it, it, exactly and you know and i think that's one of the reasons why when we're going into the psalm we did have that account of the events and the battles that his mighty men fought and how they had been victorious and so the the connection there, excuse me, inhaled wrong. Uh, the connection there being that these are 
spiritual enemies and this battle is on a cosmic level and that the, the people or the Rephaim, the, those who he's fighting, they, they've become willing participants on behalf of these spiritual enemies. And so whether it's because it's, you know, through a bloodline or it's because they made the decision, it's there. And we, we've also, and I, I keep reiterating this because it's so important. And I think we, we forget this. Anyone could join with Israel at any time. Mm. And so there was always the choice and there was always the chance to become a part, maybe not part of the bloodline, maybe not part uh, of producing the messiah in a physical sense but to be a part of the community the in a different way and so but then there's times that you know they're incorporated in so much that there is no distinction and of course ruth and rahab are great examples of that we see that with the women but caleb and how many people are shocked when they find out caleb is not an israelite (laughs) you know so that that's some really great examples of how god is saying hey i'm here I, I, I'm I'm available. You mm-hmm. just have to to turn towards me. So um, anyway, all of that being said, we're picking up in verse 37, and David says, "You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip." So David is declaring that God gives a stable footing, you know, a firm foundation. Now. Obviously, the image that David's drawing from here is real life, because where did he flee from Saul? He's in the mountains. And, you know, when he's guarding the sheep and taking them into the hills so that they can graze. And this would have been a place on a trail that would be, he's describing that moment when you turn that bend, there's a wide spot, and now I can turn and fight. And, you know, we can kind of bypass this and run right by it, but I mean, Think about what David knows. Think about what he's describing. He's talking about, you know, he's been kind of in this precarious situation, this little narrow trail, the rocks falling down below, knowing that one misstep, he's going to slam to his death. And now he's celebrating the fact that God is giving him the space to fight. And so this isn't just like, oh, this is nice. He found a nice little broad spot in the path. Isn't that great? No, this is like, you gave me the way to, to actually be able to engage this battle. And and we need to remember that that's true for us. God gives us the way to engage the battle and to engage it um, uh, properly. And so this is, this is provision. This is supernatural provision. Once again, that God would bring him to a place where it's good and appropriate or even safe for him to engage his enemy. And it, you know, this isn't just a nicety. This is pure relief. And I think we all know what that feeling is, is when you just think everything's overwhelming, life is crashing down around you, and then all of a sudden you get that little bit of reprieve, and you Mm -hmm. can actually, you know, you can actually do something. You aren't just stuck waiting for the next thing to fall apart. So, uh, you know, that's what David's describing there. And I I don't want us to miss that imagery, because to me, that's a really good image. Um, Because, you know, I know there's been times in my own life where it's like, everything's just falling apart. It's like you, there's nothing you can do except for keep moving forward and hope that there's a break in the circumstance. And so we, I think we can identify that, uh, identify with that a little more easily than the idea of a, a trail, unless you are someone who likes to go hiking, which, um, you know, most of the time we aren't being pursued by a literal enemy at that point in time. So 
verse 38, I pursued. So now he's not just running. He, he, he's actually pursuing his enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with the strength with strength to battle. You made those who rise sink under me. You made my enemies turn uh, turn their back to me. Those who hated me and I destroyed them. They looked, but they did, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but He did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. So. I mean, we were talking about violence. I mean, David is, i he didn't just subdue this enemy. He destroyed it. He consumed it. it it's gone. It, it's no longer a threat to him. It's no longer a threat to the kingdom he rules over. He is, he, he has removed all danger from his life and the lives of those who love him. Why? Because God empowered him to do, him, do this. And, um, you know, the, the passages before this, uh, 32 through 40, um, uh, before this passage, when the passage started at verse 32 went through 43, David's focusing on God fighting on David's behalf. And now David is described as the supernatural of, well, sorry, my brain is going faster than my mouth right now, so I'll try to get them synced up. David's describing has described the supernatural elements of this this battle mm-hmm. and how God had heard him in the temple and we talked about this a lot because I don't want us to lose focus of that that's a huge part of the psalm when we lose the perspective of the supernatural intervention of God on David's behalf we forget this isn't just some guy who's happy he won a fight right this, this you know it, it it really is about a cosmic battle and so, and God, you know, supernaturally intervening on David's behalf. And um, anyway, but David isn't just the recipient of a divine rescue. He, he's an active participant. He's taking a very active role in this, in the battle and the victories over those who would destroy him. And, and I think we can see the parallels in the New Testament where, yes, Jesus did everything. It was, it's finished. He said that on the cross. The victory has been won. We still have an active role to to inhabit within our spiritual growth and walk and maturity and all of that good stuff. And we need to be pursuing those things that, that get in our way and eradicating them. We could talk metaphorically. We can talk about, you know, I, I'm lazy. I love to take a good nap. I, you know, I, I need to pursue that that point to to fight down. So we can talk about it metaphorically. We can talk about it supernaturally. Uh, we there's so many ways that we can apply this in our own lives, but the idea that you say a little prayer and you get your fire insurance, it, it, and then it's all over. That that's erroneous. We mm-hmm. as as believers still have responsibility and obligations. Now I'm not talking works based salvation. That's that's not what I'm saying here, because works based implies that I can get salvation through working for it. But if I receive salvation. And I am moved by gratitude and in awe, as I should be. Now I'm going to be inspired to do what I should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do it as an act of love. I do it as an act of, of living sacrifice in order to demonstrate my devotion to the God who has saved me. So much of our lives, if we will realize what the motives are or what the motivation is, and you get motives, it tends to be a negative kind of idea. Motivation's positive. So. 
it, it doesn't have to be, oh, well, now you're a Christian. And if you do this, then you're, you're trying to buy God off. No, I, I can just simply be honoring him. Mm. And that's appropriate. Yeah. And, and something else, you mentioned the, the living sacrifice. And I think we've mentioned it on air before. Um, Heiser does a fantastic study on the sacrificial system. Because one of the mm-hmm. things that that we don't re- that I didn't realize until I listened to Heiser's study is the sacrifice. You know, everyone nowadays we think of a sacrifice, we put it all up on the altar, and it all gets completely burned up. And mm-hmm. you know, how many times have we heard the the pastor saying, "Well, the problem with the living sacrifice is it wants to keep crawling off the altar." <laughs> right. And but that wasn't the purpose of it. Though. It was a, it was a communal meal mm-hmm. with the priest mm-hmm. and the families. Mm-hmm. And so the sacrifice wasn't just something you put up on the altar and then it was just gone. It right. was, it went back out to serve the community community mm-hmm. after being dedicated to the Lord. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a great know, picture of what we're supposed to do. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, that's the beautiful thing. If we present ourselves as a living sacrifice, then what does we're supposed to be feeding back in our lives back into that community to build that community, to grow that community, sustain it. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why the assembling, you know, forsake not the assembling of yourselves. But the, the idea that, that you're supposed to be in that community, it isn't so that you can, you know, just be counted off on a roll call. It's so that you're actually contributing to it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, so it all plays together and you get this, this total picture where it's not just random commands by God to do certain things. There, there's actually purpose behind it and a purpose that's good for you, a mm-hmm. purpose that's good for your family. It's good for your friends. And so when you engage all these things and you begin to, to enact them, then you can begin to experience this new level of growth that I don't think is available to anyone who just says, well, you know, I, I prayed the sinner's prayer, uh, and we're not going to uh, talk about whether that's the wrong or right way to pursue salvation today, because that's a New Testament issue, and I'm going to hide behind the Old Testament. But mm. the idea that we're, we need to be, our lives need to be radically changed. Our, our motivation, our purpose, our, our, our identity needs to be something that we are, we are working towards bringing into alignment with God, not out of a sense of, I have to do this or he's going to smite me, but out of a sense of, I love him so much, I want to do this for him. And so, um, you know, and I think that's one of the things we haven't really been taught. Well, some of us have, some of us haven't. A lot of us have not been taught to love God, to actually enjoy him. Remember back at the beginning of the psalm, David says God's doing this. Why? Because God delights in him. Mm-hmm. Crazy concept. I, I know people who, who have, that is revolutionary in and of itself because all they were taught about God, and particularly the Old Testament God, is that he can't wait to punish you. Mm-hmm. And so when David makes these statements, God delights in me, and then he gives it to everyone to proclaim over themselves. Now he's saying, here's the reason why you pursue God. This is the reason why you trust him. And he gives us all, this grand picture of this unchanging God who humbles himself, who violates himself in order to, to come down and take part in humanity. That's not a God who hates us. That's not a God who can't wait to destroy us. That's a God who wants to be near us. And so 
this is what David's saying. Not only does he want to be near us, now when you're near God, now you participate. You become a part of the things God is doing. And so David has been empowered to, to pursue those enemies, to chase them down. God is still, even as David is obeying, God's still active. He's making the obedience possible, and he's making it more effective. And so, um, you know, we, we need to remember God equips, and that's one of the things David is saying here, God equips and he provides in battle so we can go into battle unafraid. So, um, you know, David does see his participation as part of his obligation. And, you know, I think it's very easy for him because he is the king and defender of Israel. And it's part of our obligation. Now, when I say we, we need to be careful because, you know, sometimes we can get so busy defending God that we just become hateful to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not effective. Um, we, that doesn't, I don't think that helps anyone really. I, I think it just makes us angry at the world and them angry at us. And so um, I don't think we necessarily need to defend God, but we need to be doing what God's calling us to do. And we've got to remember, as the defender of Israel, taking out Israel's enemies is an act of compassion and faithfulness for David. So I think one of the things we need to look at in our own life is, are we you know, being compassionate? Are we being faithful? And, and how are we living out those things? Because those are acts of war in a world that's defined by what we hate. And so, so many of us, that's all we know is what we hate. Well, let's talk about what we love. Let's mm-hmm. talk about what inspires us. So, um, now, we also, and I feel kind of getting repetitive, but again, this is important. Uh, we need to remember what we were shown about David's enemy. They're supernatural in origin. These are not people. These are, like you said, that 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 offspring of the Rephaim, the the Ammonites, the the giants that was right before the Psalm. These enemies they either instigated or perpetuated violence against Israel, against the people David was supposed to defend. I mean, the Philistines would come in and wipe out entire crops just to make sure that the people starved. This was natural and normal for the, these people to try to destroy Israel. Um, you know, these are people who, who God had even in some cases, like the Moabites attacking Israel, before that God had said, leave Moab alone, their family, don't touch them. Mm-hmm. And it, they chose to go on the offense against Israel, and that's when they became Israel's enemy. Um, Israel's enemies, they're serving a larger purpose than just simply acquiring the land. They don't just want the land back. They want the land unusable for its intended purpose. God has said, this is the land where my people are going to dwell so that I can bring the Messiah through this nation and save all of humanity and all of humanity can know us. That's the thing. No, no, God. That's the thing that the enemy does not want. He does not want humanity to know that there is a God whose character you can rely on, whose love is actually empowering. And, you know, because that means he's not free to do what he wants in our lives, which again is to kill, kill, still, and destroy. Watched way too much uh, Force and Fire. I keep wanting to say kill. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but. Yeah, so the, these enemies are supernaturally inspired to thwart God's plan for Israel as a nation and David as a purpose. And we need to remember that. We all have 
a supernaturally inspired enemy who wants to thwart God's purpose in our lives. And sometimes he's just there to give us a nudge because we're all too happy to cooperate. Uh, and, and sometimes mm-hmm. I think that there is an active uh, opposition to, to our destiny and to, our, uh, to how we're supposed to serve God. And how do we, we fight that? We fight that by not giving into wrath, not giving into anger and greed and all the things that we gather around us to protect ourselves and to have faith in God and still operate in love and compassion and kindness and mercy. You know, all those things that Paul lists off as the fruits of the spirits of the things God produces inside of us. Mm-hmm. These are the way he equips us now today in order to participate in this battle. He's still equipping warriors. Our weapons just look different. So anyway, am I preaching yet? I feel like I'm preaching. Uh, so anyway, uh, you know, and we need to remember that in Israel, as long as you were willing to follow a few basic rules and honor these rules that God laid out for people outside of Israel, those who did not belong to the family, you mm-hmm. were welcome. Yep. And this was still very much practiced in David's time. I mean, the most obvious example from David's time is Uriah the Hittite, whose wife was engaged in the purification rituals prescribed to the Israelite women. So whether she was an Israelite or not, this was God was still being honored in his home. Uh, we also have Ahimelech uh, the Hittite, another one of David's mighty men. Zelek the Ammonite, another one. We had the Cherethites. This is this is David's personal bodyguard. These lived in David with David in Jerusalem. They they were accepted and they were honored and they are celebrated in the Bible as being David's mighty men, as people who participated in the protection and defense of God's people. So mm-hmm. people, outsiders, were not only welcome in, they, they were celebrated whenever they engaged in the things God had laid out for Israel to do, when they voluntarily took it on as part of their identity. They weren't just born into it. They weren't just trained and raised up in it. They actually said, I'm willing to put aside everything I have known, everything that I was taught and trained by my family to become a part of this new community. And mm-hmm. so it, it, it's, it's the same thing that we talk about whenever we see a convert to Christianity today. And so, you know, it, it's not a new concept. There is that continuity. And it's not just Israel who's being saved in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew Scriptures. And um, we, and we got to remember, too, the, the enemies David's fight, fighting, these are not just enemies of David. This isn't somebody David accidentally bumped with a shopping cart in Walmart. These are enemies who are God's enemies. These are enemies who have declared war against the God of Israel. That's a huge thing. When you declare war against the creator God, you're putting yourself in a place where you're just basically asking to be destroyed. And so, um, you know, they, they've chosen to align themselves because if you can choose to align yourself with God, you can choose not to align yourself with God. And so basically, they're doing what David described in that previous passage where he says, you know, to the merciful, you will be merciful, to the blameless, you will be blameless. But at the end of that, to the perverse, to the twisted, to the crooked, you will make yourself torturous. So David said, you know, these people, these enemies of God that David's facing, they chose their fate. They condemned themselves to this mm-hmm. fate. And 
it really does foreshadow that final judgment that we talk about with, with Jesus in the end times. And it, it also fulfills this prophecy in Enoch that the sons of the watchers would die and the watchers would be condemned to see their children die. Mm-hmm. And so that's another way that Enoch and the watchers do play in. Because remember, this, this giant before the beginning of, uh, of this uh, psalm, and part of the, the, the purpose of the Messiah has always been to enact judgment. Mm-hmm. So much so that when Jesus came making the invitation first, offering love and forgiveness and a belonging in, the, in his lifetime here on earth, the Jews missed him. Because what were they expecting in a Messiah? Somebody who's going to come and judge the nations. Mm-hmm. And so that's always been part of the expected mission of the Messiah. And it, this is really the fulfillment of Hannah's song. And we've got to remember, all of Samuel really is based off of that stated mission right there at the beginning of, of Samuel in chapter 2, where Hannah says this is the reality God is going to create, where the oppressed are no longer going to be oppressed where the poor are going to be raised up, they're going to be seated with princes, the hungry are going to be filled, the barren are going to have seven children. This is the promise of God's Messiah being present in the land. It's a full-on reversal of everything you have known. And so David is fulfilling this prophecy, and we, we get that foreshadowing of the day when Jesus is going to fulfill that prophecy. And you know, we need to remember who David's followers were. We were told in First um, Samuel that they're the ones who are in distress. They're the ones in debt. They're the ones bitter of soul. I mean, come on. How many of us aren't in debt? I mean, in today's society, these are the ones that Hannah says are going to be made rich. That's a promise to us. And I'm not, you know, saying that, oh, let's just be, you know, looking for money. I'm not, I don't want to go down that road. I I don't ascribe to the prosperity gospel in any shape or form, but part of God's promises is that at some point there's going to be richness. And I think that sometimes we need to measure richness, not in terms of dollar signs, but in terms of the quality of life and relationships that we have. And so these, these people who were in distress, in debt, and they're bitter of spirit, they are the ones who are now going up against the sons of God, the, the watchers, those fallen angels that uh, the book of Enoch talks about and their offspring and embodied in the Rephaim. So, you know, that's a huge reversal. If you can take someone who is so downtrodden as David's followers had to be in order to want to follow him, I mean, they gave up everything or they didn't have anything to begin with to wander around in the wilderness, hoping that Saul's army didn't catch them, hoping that anybody they left at home wasn't killed. Remember David took his own family to Moab in order to try to save them. And so, uh, you know, these, these people, this kind of ragtag little army that, that David has assembled, they have risen to the point that they can take on the sons of gods. That's crazy. That's, you know, this is what David's celebrating. And I I think we don't get that if we don't have the context of all of David's life behind him. And Mm -hmm. so 
you know, David's victories aren't just a celebration of how good of a fighter David is. David's victories really are the manifestation of God's you know, faithfulness to his words and God's superior, superiority over the, the foreign gods, over those watchers, and, and or the sons of God in Genesis 6, however you want to refer to them. This is God saying, I'm still God, and I still control everything. And yes, you've been running amok out here, but guess what? There's a reckoning, and, and this is the first step in that reckoning, and it's David's reign and the eradication of these supernatural uh, hybrid children. So, and if it's important that we recognize their identity too, from the prospect of, or from the perspective of, they're brutal. Mm-hmm. Okay, Th- these are not nice little polite soldiers lined up in a line, you know, shooting each other. Yeah, there's no nicety in warfare. And when you read about what these ancient cultures did, I mean, I'm not even talking Enoch. We could get into the book of Enoch and we can talk about how awful the things that the sons of the watchers were right up to cannibalism and other things. But when we look at what these ancient cultures did to other nations that they defeated, we would recoil. I mean, this, Mm -hmm. there was nothing. I mean, we all are familiar, almost too familiar with the the imagery of crucifixion and how awful that was. That's just one element of what happened in ancient times, because I mean, we even started out the book of um, Judges, you know, they capture a king. What are we going to do? We're going to cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And then we're going to keep him around as a party pet. You know, it, it, it's not. Um, the the enemies that David were up against were not civilized in any shape or form. And so they, in facing these enemies, these enemies who had a choice, these enemies who had the ability to decide whether or not they were going to align with Israel and the God of Israel or not. Um, you, you know, they, the, the the conflict reveals the choice and the choice reveals the conflict. Um, mm-hmm. The only way to preserve the authenticity of the choice is for there to be consequences. And I go, no, I go back to that. But so often when we get into these theological debates, we, we forget we have to make room because the Bible does for human decision and human will to have an impact in creation. Mm-hmm. We have been asked to participate in the things that God does. And when he empowers us to do things, there's, that's real. That, that's not just some kind of lip service to, oh, you know, you're, you're going to help me. I mean, I, come on. I know we do this with our kids. You're going to help me cook. And then we give them something stupid to do that has no bearing on the actual meal. That's not what God does to us. He actually puts us in a position of trust. He puts us in a position of power, and that's what David is talking about. He is talking about the actual participation with real consequences, real um, impact on not just his life, but the impact of the nation, and therefore the, uh, the world at large, and our, you know, literally, yours and mine are our future and fate. And that's how much impact the choices of individual has. That if David can make a decision so long ago that impacts my reality, we can only imagine what the choices, what the impact the choices we make actually have on the reality 
that we inhabit. And because the truth is, if your choices don't have consequences, then you don't have a choice. You have the illusion, you have the lie or the sham, uh, however you want to put it. And then God becomes a liar. So um, now within the choice, there's the, the chance to have, you know, the provision for protection and preservation. And, you know, that's um, something God has promised to Israel, and it, he promises it to everyone. And David outlines the, the basis for that. We saw that earlier, where God responds to people according to their actions. And I know I keep going back to that, but that's the explanation David has given us, and it's the basis. And I, I, I think we need to grab hold of that, that God has actually laid out these very clear parameters in this um, psalm that we don't often study. And as the king of Israel, God's Messiah, you know, little M Messiah there, and the representative of God on earth, David becomes the means through which God will keep his word to the world. David mm -hmm. actually, you know, he becomes a weapon in God's hand. And God is absolutely victorious, and God is absolutely victorious through David's victory. So here's the other part of that. If God left evil unchecked, he would not be acting in accordance to his character and nature. He, he would be acting outside of his word. He would be violating his promise. So the fact that God actually does restrain evil, even through violent means, it is a way of demonstrating once again that God can be trusted. So verse 44, um, you delivered me from the strife with my people. You kept me as the something of the nations. Let me do because I skipped what the word verse? evidently. Uh, as the head of the nations, verse 44. Yeah. <laughs> you kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I have not known serve me. So once again, David's describing um describing personal experience. Remember the king of Tyre came and wanted to build a castle for him. Um, you know, David's, uh, but before we get to that part, I guess I should like deal with the verse in order. David's transition to the throne. We need to remember that was not smooth. God didn't just show up and go, Hey, you're the King of Israel. Here's your capital city. Here's your throne. Here's your castle. And it's, you know, just poof done. David actually had to go through all those intervening years where his fate was not determined as far as human eyes could see. It was only through faith that he could actually believe that God might get him to the throne. Um, you know, Saul's family and Saul's entire tribe, sometimes it seems like uh, there are a few who disagree, think that David's not even the rightful king, that he doesn't have the right to rule. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's something we forget, that there would be this kind of political... Um, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? But the the just the politics of it and the quagmire that people get drug into, and you know, he said, she said, and who's right and who's wrong. We still see this today. We're not unfamiliar with it. But David, you know, David's nobody, and he takes the throne from Saul, who's head and shoulders above all the rest. He's a great warrior. He comes from a good family. He he Saul is what a king should look like. Mm -hmm. And so how can this little shepherd boy be the appropriate king of Israel? Surely he can't be the one. So, you know, I think we need to put ourselves back into the, the, the mindset of what it might be to be somebody at that time 
and think about who do who would you want to have as king? And as much as we may not want to admit it, looks do matter. And right. So well, I mean that. Yeah, that's why. That's why they say uh, who was it? Like when when the the first televised presidential debates, mm. they they said that, you know the the person who the audience thought lost actually probably did a better job debating, but because they looked a little bit nervous and sweaty, then, you know, everyone voted for the other guy. I can't remember which one it was, but there, that's I a, so I don't know if that's a true story, but it's kind of this, you know, little anecdote that goes around. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and they've and done the, studies. And the, uh, the politicians had names. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm yeah. terrible with names. Well, yeah, I, Obviously, I think people have heard us uh, stumble over names and numbers enough on here. But yeah, I mean, so you know, there, there's that element of you know, David doesn't fit the right perceptions according to to what people would think a king should look like. Um, you know, we got Absalom's rebellion, his own son trying to kill him. Uh, that's not an easy thing to to endure. Shiva's rebellion. Um, you know, all the threats from outside the kingdom. But now David is declaring that God has ended the division. There's no more strife among the people. He's, he, God has taken care of all of these other alternative claims to the throne. And David's being acknowledged as the rightful king in Israel, not just by the Israelites and by his family or the countrymen, but by even outside nations. People David has not even known believe he's the right king for the for the job. He's mm-hmm. the right man for the job. Mm-hmm. And and the plural here of nations is not accidental. Um, by this point in David's reign, he controlled at least parts of Moab, Edom, Amnon, Damascus, various city-states of uh, different countries. And, you know, and this is that foreshadowing of that, that final fulfillment of prophecy that all nations will worship the God of Israel and they will obey the, the Messiah, mm-hmm. Jesus. And, and we see that in Isaiah 55, 6 through 7. Uh, I'm not going to read that one, but Isaiah 45, 22 says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 56, 7. There will bring, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of, yeah, in the house of prayer. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all people. Jeremiah echoes what, what Isaiah says. This is Jeremiah 3.17. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of God, of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And there shall, uh, no more stub- they shall no more stubbornly follow, the, follow their own evil heart. Daniel 7.14. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Zephaniah 2.11, the Lord will be awesome against, the, uh, against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth. And to him they shall bow down, each in its place, in, the land, in all the lands of the nations. Zephaniah 3.9, for at that time I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. And that's just a sampling of the Hebrew, those Old Testament texts, where there's this anticipation of the entire world worshiping God and the mm-hmm. entire world joining in the blessings that Hannah says God is going to enact. 
This isn't just something that is going to, to happen for Israel. This is going to be global. And of course, we catch a glimpse of that in Acts 22, and where we began to see that, uh, sorry, Acts 2, where, where all the nations are represented in that moment where everyone's hearing in their own tongue. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, Acts is really the, the ground floor of the gospel moving outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, and beginning to be spread among the earth so that the Messiah can take his place as the true ruler and king of all the earth and all the peoples. And again, what's so great about this passage, the consistency is there. God's purpose, God's plan was never just to elevate Israel over all the rest of the world. His his plan was never to say, these are the only people I love. Uh, Let's use some popular language. These are my elect, and they're the only ones who can be saved. That's not how it works. The, the, the system that God's put in place, if you want to call it that, is the elect are the ones who were elected to, to serve a purpose, to fulfill a mission, to do acts of service. Why? So that everyone else can witness what God is doing and have that invitation to join with them. Mm-hmm. So the elect are not those who are ultimately saved. The elect are those who participate in and providing salvation or being the means through which salvation can be extended to all the world. Why? Because God asked humanity to participate in his in his plans. And so when we talk about the elect, we need to be very careful not to say, oh, well, only the elect are saved. That was not true of Israel. We've demonstrated that over and over again. It is not true in the New Testament where only the elect can, can be saved. It's the elect are, have the ability to participate at a different level because there's a certain function that they can fulfill like nobody else can. And why can they do that? Because God will supernaturally empower them because they honor him. So we can, you know, I'm sure spend an entire episode on that, but we, we begin to misunderstand New Testament terms. Mm-hmm when we don't have the Hebrew Old Testament terms and the application to back them up. I, I was listening to, let's see how far astray I'm, I can keep myself from going. I was listening to a podcast this morning where uh, the guy said that we have Old Testament stories that might serve as examples, but they're not really teaching. Okay, fine. Um, he, He's right. Now, where does the teaching come in? Paul tells us all scripture is given. Paul tells us Mm -hmm. what to do with these stories. So while it may not lay out a lesson plan, it actually reveals what we're supposed to be doing through examples. And you know what? Every lesson I've ever known, every effective teaching I've ever encountered, particularly for small children, where do you begin? with an example. And this is one of the reasons why I really do like that, that rabbinic principle where you do not enact a law unless you have two narratives explaining and showing you the example of how to enact it. Because now you have a basis for understanding. And let's just be real, most of us are stupid and we need all the help we can get. And so examples are great ways of of God providing that help so we can understand how to enact. 
um, enact his commands. So what, what we see in David's life, and this is why we need to study it as Christians, is that foreshadowing. It's taking that grand vision of what the Messiah is supposed to do and accomplish and who he is, and it's bringing it down into smaller bite-sized pieces that we can actually begin to wrap our minds around. It's not so huge that we can't understand it or we're so in awe of it we can't begin to comprehend. It actually gives us a way to kind of get that toehold in a larger truth. Mm -hmm. So if that makes sense. So, uh, but yeah, that, that consistency, I, I, I'm all about the consistency. I think God is about consistency. I think he likes that, that order from chaos, uh, being perpetuated through consistency. And, um, there's just, it it makes the old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures better. It it makes it, um, not that makes it better. It makes our understanding and help our appreciation be better. So Mm -hmm. anyway, in the Psalm, you know, David's saying that, that God's will is being accomplished and it, and it's just that start. It, it, if this is, is possible under David, it, it most certainly is going to be so much more with, with Jesus. And I don't know how we can read these passages without thinking that uh, of the the passage in Philippians two nine through eleven, and which is therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth under the earth, and the tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So you know David saying people I didn't know we're willing to serve me and obey me. Mm-hmm. And so again, it's that, that foreshadowing. And this is one of those times that I'm, I'm willing to say that David is a type for Jesus. It, it's not you know, too often. We want to apply that to everyone in the old Testament. That's not the case. We we've talked about when we look, went through judges, why not everyone should be viewed as a type for Jesus. Some of them are just really messed up people, but here, because David is talking about himself functioning in that role as the Messiah, the little M Messiah. So verse 47, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. Verse 48, the Lord gave me my vengeance and brought brought down people under me who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. So we already covered this earlier on because this is pretty much the, uh, almost a verbatim uh, repeat of the, the opening verse. And, but the function here is to remind us that we need to not be in awe of David. We need to be in awe of the God who saved David, who empowered David, who emboldened David. And so we're not supposed to forget that, well, David's a very active participant in what God is accomplishing in Israel. David is actually only able to do this because this is what God is doing in his life through him around him and the fact that God is being an active participant in David's life and you know and I, I think that um, you know this is kind of one of those really weird areas of tension that every believer kind of inhabits that you know we participate in what God's, what God is doing we don't create we don't cause uh, we don't really prevail apart from God's grace and mercy. 
but yet we still have to to be willing to to step up when when God has called us to step up. And so, and we were talking about that just a few minutes. It's it's that that tension between am I doing this to try to pay God off or am I doing it because I'm inspired and I actually believe that this is the way I best honor God. And so when God's anointed king has this level of success, uh, it's because God has been at work and it's appropriate that we refocus ourselves back on God and what God is doing in and through David rather than just think, oh, wow, this is this guy I need to emulate. The only person we need to emulate is Jesus because, you know, we've already seen David's righteousness and David's cleanness that he spoke of earlier only happened because he repented of the horrible things he did before. So verse 50, for this, I will praise you, O Lord, among nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. So David promises to declare this truth, and you know all his victories, uh, he can attribute and credit right back to God. Uh, they will know that the nations are going to know that God is the true victor here. It's not just David, and mm-hmm. God will defend his anointed king. Why? Because God has steadfast love for David. And then we put that in Psalms 18. We're all able to proclaim it over ourselves now. Why can we have victory? Because God has steadfast love for us. You know, David is celebrating the fact that he prevailed, he had these victories because God acts in integrity and according to that love, not because David bought him off, because you couldn't really buy off the ancient gods. Sometimes you could, sometimes you couldn't, but you never could guess when that might be. David is able to do what he did because God is, he's stable, he's unchanging, and he always acts with integrity. And so, David is celebrating the fact that God is who he is. And in that being, in that, in that, I don't want to say predictability. That's, that's the wrong word, but. Steadfastness. In, <laughs> yeah. I, well, yeah. In, Reliability. In, exactly. When you can rely on God, when, when you have that, I mean, that really frees you up to do so much that you couldn't do otherwise. And it, it does inspire you. And it has, I mean, when you've got that firm foundation, there's a reason God is called the rock so many times. That's that firm foundation that you can actually build off of. So, it, you know, this is this psalm, like I've said it before, that psalms aren't really my thing. I, I've never really been a big psalm person. But as I got into this, I mean, I just kept getting more and more excited about what was presented in it because there's so much depth here that does tie directly to Jesus as our Messiah. Mm-hmm. And so um, I probably chased a few more rabbits than, than I should. But <laughs> anyway, real quick, we won't take a lot of time um, because I know we're getting close to our hour, but I, I mentioned Hannah. And if you look at this Psalm and you look at Hannah's prophecy in First Samuel chapter 2, you're going to find some shared language. And I'm just going to point out a, a few of where the it's just boom in your face with the shared language. And I think our listeners are smart enough to be able to see even where the language isn't shared, the themes are there. That we've got those connecting themes. 
so um, when David says, my horn is raised high through the Lord. Oh, wait a minute. I've got to get the post-it note out of my way. <laughs> so uh, David says that God is his shield and horn of salvation. Hannah says, my, my horn is raised high through the Lord. And that's in verse 3 of Second uh, Samuel 22. So we got that shared horn language, salvation, the, the idea of horn being power and authority. Uh, we talked about that on the episode with Hannah. Uh, verse 48, David returns uh, to this idea of uh, reversal. He says that the God who grants vengeance to me and brings people down beneath. David uh, is talking about being raised up. Hannah talks about the horn being raised up and being the what allows her to, um, it, she's describing her power and authority within this position, within her own life, which there seemed to be none when she started out and God actually super inter supernaturally intervenes to allow her to be raised up above her present circumstance. Um, David says from my enemies, I was rescued. That's verse four. And then verse 18, he said, he saved me from enemies fierce. Um, and Hannah says, I was gladdened by your rescue. So we've got this idea of the rescue again, a supernatural rescue. Uh, Hannah says, uh, for there's no one beside you and there's no bastion or rock like our God. David, verse 32, says, for who is God but the Lord, who is a rock but our God, the God who is my mighty stronghold. Stronghold, sorry. Uh, we know that she says, do not go talking high and mighty. Uh, arrogance slips from your mouth. And David says that God's eyes are on the haughty that he could bring them low. Uh, in verse 56, David said, the snares of Sheol, uh, sorry, verse 6, says the snares of Sheol coiled around me and traps of death uh, sprang against me. And Hannah talks about the God deals death, grants life, and brings down to Sheol and lifts up. And verse 8 through 20 in David's song, we have uh, God's deliverance enacted, which that's what Hannah's talking about. So she's talking about God's deliverance. In verse 28, David says, A lowly people you rescue, cast your eyes down on the haughty, which I just referenced that. But uh, Hannah says it again in a different way. She says, He raises the poor from the dust, the dung heaps, from the dung heaps, the wretched. He lifts to the seat among princes. It's the same thing. It's the same idea. Even if we don't have the very specific same language, we still have the same ideas being restated. Um, Hannah says, for the, lords are the, for the lords are pillars of the earth upon Upon them he founded the world. And in verse 16 of David's psalm, we have the, the world's foundations laid bare. And verses 26 or 28 of David's psalm, he says, with the loyal you act loyally, or uh, with the faithful you are faithful. Uh, I've got a different translation here. With the blameless warrior you are without blame. With the pure you show yourself pure. And we've talked about this. With the perverse you show yourself to be torturous. Hannah says the steps of the faithful he watches and the witness he turns in darkness turns dumb for by a might he will uh, for not by might will men prevail in verse 13 david says from the heavens the lord thundered and hannah says the lord shatters his enemies and shatters <laughs> sorry scatters his enemies against them in the heavens he thunders and so um then in verse 51, David says that God is a tower of rescue to his king, keeping faith with his anointed for David, uh, his seed forever. 
And then Hannah closed with the Lord judges the ends of the earth. May he grant the strength to his king and raise his anointed horn. And so we've got these similar, similar phrases. We've got these, these shared words, rescue, the supernatural deliverance. We have glorying in God's steadfast love and his divine defense of the powerless and the faithful. Um, God's authority over all creation from the, from the foundations to the earth to the heavens and that all the people inhabit the earth. And God's standard being the measure by which we're, we're judged. Now, David echoes Hannah's hopes and this vision for the future. And sometimes um, in her own words, uh, but David, he affirms the fulfillment of her prophecy at this time. That's what David's doing. He's saying everything Hannah laid out, well, not everything, it's, but, well, I guess you could say everything. Everything's starting with me. We're, we're starting to get that glimpse of what the future is going to be with Jesus in the person of David, which we talked about. And so we're reminded that this whole book is the story about how God fulfills his promises, what David is celebrating here. He fulfills his promises. And this is specifically a promise made to a barren woman and nobody within the society and culture of her time. If you can trust God to keep his promises to someone who has absolutely no political clout, no social or cultural value to anyone except for maybe her husband, then absolutely you can expect him to keep the promises to his people as a whole. And that's the beauty of Samuel. It starts with this one woman who says there's an injustice in the system. There's a problem here. We cannot allow this to continue. God, I'm willing to work with you. I'm willing to participate in helping you do whatever you plan to do with Israel. You just got to open the door for me. And, and that's who she, she becomes. She sets off this chain, chain reaction of events that leads us to this place where Israel now has a king and not just any king. He, Israel has a Messiah. And so we go back to Hannah. Why? To remember that this is not just a, this isn't the story about just a man. This is, you know, this really is about the power of anyone to, to cry out to God and know that he will be faithful in what he has promised to do. And we start with the lowest of low in the society and we end with the highest of high in the society. And, And it's just, it's amazing because it's not how the story's been taught. Mm-hmm. It's not what we've been shown to to know is true about Hannah. And, you know, she's not some wimp. She she's not some pathetic creature. She she is willing to stand up and, and do everything she can do. And she changes the course of a nation, which in turn changes the course of our fate and mm-hmm. our future. And so, you know, maybe we should stop, you know, trying to teach. Uh, stories about women in the Bible as if it's just, oh, God needed to throw in a few diverse characters into the cast. That's not what he did. You know, right. they're all pivotal. So, um, and I love the fact that this is the king of Israel, the one that Hannah prophesied would come, repeating mm-hmm. back her words. I, I, he, David even is kind of acknowledging in his own way Hannah's, the part that Hannah played in him getting there. Yeah. So, Anyway, uh, we'll talk, yeah, we'll talk some more about the chiasm 
uh, structure because I did promise y'all that, and uh, we'll talk about that next week. And then promised or threatened. It's a promise. Chiasms <laughs> are fun. Uh, so no, I, they, they they can be. It's just it's it's difficult on the podcast to go through. It, it so. is, and we're gonna we're gonna do a very simplified version uh, because it can be be daunting. And then after we go through that, then we're gonna talk about David's last words, and then the final chiasm of the last four chapters. So is that a promise or a threat? Read it how you will. So anyhow. Uh, Sounds I good. Think I'm done. Yeah. I'll okay. quit talking now. All right. I'll talk to you later, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, so everyone out there, thanks for joining us. Uh, hit us up on the internet. Be uh, be part of the conversation. RavenCreekSC.com is the website. RavenCreekSC on all the social media. And uh, I guess we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.